Well, good morning, Covenant Baptist Church. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 120. For those of you who have been here, you know that we finished the book of Jude with much joy. I am happy to share that the Lord is granting us an opportunity to share in another series This time, beginning with Psalm 120, it's my intention, Lord willing, to do a short series on the Psalms of Ascents. That would be the first, well, the 15 Psalms, including 120 through 134. So today's going to be somewhat of an introduction to this grouping of Psalms, the Psalms of Ascents, these 15 Psalms. And I also want to cover the first of these psalms, so we have our work cut out for us. And if you remember in 1 John, in Jude, the first sermon always is an introduction coupled with uh, the text of Scripture, and so I apologize if it moves quickly. I don't want to spend too much time, but I do want to lay a foundation uh, to build upon as we consider these uh, 15 psalms. Well, here is encouragement for the Christian Adopted by God. As exiles scattered throughout this fallen world, even in the midst of persecution and heartache and grief and multiplied sorrow, we can rest and take courage, knowing we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and are sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace is ours in the fullest measure. Amen. Our outline today is three parts. A thankful plea. That'll be verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 120. A thankful plea. Part 2 is a faithful taunt. Verses 3 and 4. And then part 3 is a longing, a longful lament. So a thankful plea, a faithful taunt, a longful lament. Let us read Psalm 120 together, and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help. Psalm 120, the superscription reads, A Song of Ascents. In my trouble I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree. Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshech, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask for your help now as we open up this first psalm in the Song of Ascents, Psalm 120. Would you guide us by your spirit? Help us to discern the things that you have in store for us this morning and to show us your son, Jesus Christ, in all these words. For all of the scriptures testify about him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I was saying, today we begin what I hope to be a series and a portion of one of the most cherished books in all of Scripture. The book of Psalms has always been held close by Christians throughout the age for its aid in prayer. You may have heard of praying through the Psalms. Its intended use in song or singing, we did that this morning, and also meditation. After all, It is in the very first psalm where we read of our Savior, Jesus' unwavering devotion as Messiah. And in his law, he meditates day and night. But just maybe, perhaps above all, we find ourselves as broken and needy sinners drawn to the book of Psalms for the eternal comfort they bring us in times of sorrow, in times of trial in times of lament. And yet, 
It is true that meeting us in the Psalms are not only words that kindle our devotion and soothe our spirit, but also words that, if originating from any one of us, may cause us to cover our mouths in shame like Job. Words like, Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. These words are shocking. Shocking because they seem to us, on the surface, to suggest that our great omniscient God, who knows all things, has forgotten something. And furthermore, we are not only offering ourselves as the remedy to his forgetfulness, but actually on, the basis, on that basis, giving him a command to action. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we can imagine a time in our suffering where we are tempted to think such thoughts. And that is how God often meets us in the Psalms, where we are, knowing our brokenness and yet not leaving us there, but rather with the intimate voice of Christ taking us to himself and binding up our wounds. This is but one refraction of the light which sparkles from the book of Psalms. We need help like this on our way through this fallen world, do we not? We are weary pilgrims on our journey to the heavenly Jerusalem. And the Psalms are often the walking stick that steady us when our legs get wobbly. And today's sermon and this series on the 15 Psalms of Ascents, I trust, will accomplish all this purpose and more. As God meets us in his word for our good and his glory. Amen. Well, here's a brief introduction. Introduction to the Psalms in general. Hebrew, the word which we translate Psalms, literally means praises. Whereas the English word Psalms comes from the Septuagint rendering, the ancient Greek translation of that Hebrew Old Testament, the word psalmoi, meaning songs. So here we have songs of praise, using the Hebrew and the Greek together. That's what the Psalms are. They are songs of praise. And there are 150 of them in our canon. Psalms were written by various human authors. You may know that David wrote about half of them. Whereas Asaph wrote about 12. The, songs of Kor- the sons of Korah, 10. Solomon wrote two. Moses wrote one. He-Man, not the action figure, wrote one. Ethan wrote one, with another 48 being anonymous. The book of Psalms is divided into five books, corresponding with the five books of Moses. Isn't that interesting? Each of the five books end with a doxology. And in your Bibles, you will probably see the books laid out in this way. There are titles, what are often called superscriptions, to many of the Psalms, which are very ancient. We read it this morning at the beginning of Psalm 120. It says a song of a sense. That is a superscription, but they're ancient, and in many cases may have been written by the human author himself. Throughout the entire book of Psalms are included psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of lament, enthronement psalms, as they're called, penitential psalms, imprecatory psalms, and wisdom psalms, and more. The group of psalms we will be looking at, again in our series, are called the Psalms of Ascent. And again, there's 15 of them, delivered as a singular unit in Scripture. These 15 psalms of ascent are not scattered throughout the 150. They're given to us in one chunk, starting in Psalm 120. Now, most of the psalms were written in the time of David and Solomon, somewhere between 1010 and 930 B.C., And the final editor of the book was most likely Ezra, around 450 B.C. Now this makes some people squirm when they consider the books of the Bible or any portion of Scripture having editorial work done to it. How do you harmonize that with the inspired Word of God? Well, we do know this from our confession that all of Scripture being immediately inspired by God and by His singular care and providence 
has been kept pure in all ages, and therefore authentic, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. One author put it this way, rightly so. By the singular care and providence of the Lord's sovereign purposes, the awesome structure and substance of the Psalter is exactly what he intended it to be. To God be the glory for the incomparable majesty of his perfect word. And brothers and sisters, I encourage you to study the Psalms, but to begin humbly for one of the reasons is many have sought to figure out what the structure of the Psalms is. And everyone who reads the Psalms recognizes there is a structure. But what that structure actually is, is perplexing to many theologians throughout church history. But we do know this, the structure is the result of God's providential, singular care. And for that we rejoice. And that's why it's no coincidence that these psalms are put together in a single unit of 15. Someone chose to do that. Again, most likely Ezra in 450 B.C. after the Babylonian captivity. But here is the point. This is what God intended. God's hand is in the structure of these 15 psalms and in the very words. That's a brief introduction to the psalms in general. Now let's continue an introduction into the Psalms of Ascent. Again, the superscription reads, A Song of Ascents. Maybe in older translations it'll say something like this, the, the, the Songs of Degrees. It's not just the Song of Ascent, but Ascents, plural. And not just degree, but degrees, plural. A continual rising. And again, this is Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. So where did this title originate? What does it mean that these are songs of ascents or songs of degrees? Well, some have concluded that these psalms were intended to be sung by the covenant community on their way up to Jerusalem for the required feasts. You can read about those required feasts in Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy chapter 16. But we know that the Jews were commanded to go to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts And tradition has it that as the pilgrims were traveling to Jerusalem, they would sing these 15 songs all along the way. Very popular perspective. In fact, it becomes more compelling when you recognize that Scripture always talks about Jerusalem as being up. Let's go up to Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 6, verse 12, or Jeremiah 31, or even Micah chapter 4. According to the Old Testament perspective, Jerusalem is always up. Interesting. That could be a whole sermon right there. So could these be the intended meaning for these songs of ascents? You're going up to Jerusalem, and so you sing these psalms going up. Some others have concluded that the intended intended, uh, purpose for these psalms was that they were to be sung by the Jewish exiles on their way up to Jerusalem following the Babylonian captivity. So now it's not just a secular uh, singing of these psalms by pilgrims, but it was specifically for the generation of Jewish exiles leaving Babylon. Again, still compelling. They're still going up to Jerusalem. And there is a particular context about leaving slavery and going into the promised land. More on that as the sermon unfolds. Another group of theologians argues, no, this is a song that is intended to be sung by the Levites on the 15 steps by which they went up from the court of the women to the court of the Israelites. Now someone like John Gill, who we trust very much, says this, this is the common opinion of the Jews, and which is embraced by many Christians that these 15 psalms correspond to these 15 literal steps between the court of the women and the court of the Israelites. Compelling. 15 steps, 15 psalms. Some argue that, no, this is actually just a musical instruction. We have many instructions in the psalms, some of them that are actually a loss to our interpretation, but that are instructions on how to sing the psalms, what kind of rhythm this psalm should be to, 
So that the psalms of ascents are just literally communicating, these are psalms that should be sung in the higher register. Psalms of ascent, psalms that go up. So it's musical instruction. Some would argue that actually the psalms of ascents offer spiritual instruction. Now, none of us are going to deny that as we learn from God's word this morning. But listen to Augustine. St. Augustine. But degrees or ascents, as they are used in this psalm, are of ascending. Listen. There are therefore both those who ascend and those that descend on the ladder. Who are they that ascend? They who progress towards the understanding of things spiritual. Who are they that descend? Well, those are they who, as far as men may, enjoy the comprehension of spiritual things. Nevertheless, they descend unto the infants to say to them such things as they may receive, so that after being nourished with milk, they may be fitted and strong enough to take spiritual meat. So to Augustine, the, these psalms are actually about a spiritual reality. It sounds very much like Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, where the Apostle Paul says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Augustine is saying that these psalms are actually fulfilling a purpose that the Apostle Paul had in this letter to the Hebrews when he says, look at these psalms of ascent, learn from them, become spiritual from them, rise in your understanding so that you can then descend on this same ladder and teach those who need milk and that they can be nourished and become strong. So what, what is it? Is it a yearly pilgrimage song by the Jews? Is it specifically for the generation of Jews coming out of Babylon? Is it intended for the Levites alone climbing the 15 steps? Is it musical instruction? Is it spiritual instruction? I think what we can conclude is, in one way or another, the answer to all these things is yes. The reason why theologians struggle so often with these different layers is because there's truth in every one of them. And I think as we continue in the sermon today, we will see that there is truth in every one of them. So let's look at the verse now. That is the brief introduction. Thank you for your patience and your endurance. A thankful plea. That's our heading for this first part. A thankful plea. Spiritual peaks, brothers and sisters, are often followed by spiritual valleys. Listen to the word of the Lord. In my trouble I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Now, one thing that strikes me right away is we have, in verse 1, a thankful petition. In my trouble, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. This is a song of thankfulness, a song of rejoicing, that his cry did not go unanswered, but was answered. But then right away, verse 2 takes a shift to a plea. Deliver my soul. O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Do you see the contrast there between verse 1 and verse 2? Now, many fine commentators believe the background for this psalm, humanly speaking, is the persecution that David experienced from Saul's chief shepherd, his herdsman, named Doeg. Let's turn to 1 Samuel, if you're able. 1 Samuel chapter 21 for some context. We're going to be looking in verse uh, I'm sorry in chapter 21, 1 Samuel chapter 21, but before we get there a little brief outline of the history leading up to this in 1 Samuel. Remember in chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. A story that we all are, I'm sure, familiar with. And then we re later read of Saul taking David under his care. And then we read of Jonathan, Saul's son, making a covenant with David. They became very close one with another. The sons 
or the king's son in David. Then Saul, in chapter 18, makes David a commander over the, host, the whole host of Israel. David is gaining notoriety. He's gaining prestige because of his battle prowess. Remember that song that was chanted by the Israelites when they reflected on David, especially as he came home from battle? Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands, and how that enraged Saul. So much that Saul then turns on David and wants to put him to death. And he hunts David like an animal. But by the providence of the Lord, like Moses escaping the Egyptians in a basket made of reeds in the Nile River, David escapes the hands of Saul. And he fled to Samuel the prophet and told Samuel what was happening with the king. And then we read of Jonathan protecting David further. And then Saul turns on Jonathan, his own son. Jonathan helps David flee once more. And then it says this in the first verse of chapter 21. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Oh, the stories that David could tell to the priest. But as we continue to unfold this chapter, we read of David eating the showbread, eating that bread which was consecrated to the priests and only lawful for them to eat. In fact, our Lord Jesus cites this very instance when his disciples were husking the grain in their hands in the fields, and the Pharisees said, they're working on the Sabbath. They're breaking God's law. And Jesus says, have you not read what David and his friends did when they came to Ahimelech the priest? And he cites this portion of Scripture. But while David was there, receiving sustenance from the Lord, Guess who else was there? Doag. Doag was there. Doag seized David. In chapter 21, look at verse 6. So the priest gave him consecrated bread, that is David, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which was removed from before the Lord in order to be put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. And his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. So here we have the chief shepherd of Saul seeing the shepherd David, who again is a type of the chief shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. Doeg returns to Saul. Saul is angered, knowing now that his son Jonathan has made a covenant with David. Saul's enraged with his soldiers. And Doeg sees his chance. In 1 Samuel 22, verse 9, Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, and began to spill all the beans to Saul concerning David which only kindled Saul's rage even more. And then Doeg reaps the whirlwind. In verses 18 and 19 of 1 Samuel 22, this is what happens. Saul wants all the priests killed. He gathers them up, and he turns to his soldiers and says, Kill them! And all of his soldiers not in the text literally, but drop their swords, will not kill the priests. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. Does he do it? Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests, and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. Can you imagine? He goes further. And... He struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, 
children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep, and he struck with the edge of the sword, all of them. Seeking to win the king's favor, Doeg will reap the whirlwind. So this is the context. When David heard what Doeg had done in Israel by killing the priests, he was very sorrowful and said, I have brought this sorrow upon the nation. It gives you a little more context behind the words, In my trouble I cried to the Lord. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Now, if you look at this first line, In my trouble I cried to the Lord, and he answered me, the Hebrew verb here used here, the Hebrew verb used here denotes a past action that continues into the present. You may notice in our New American Standard Bible, it says, In my trouble I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. The ESV reads very similarly, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. The King James reads very similar, I cried unto the Lord, and he answered me. But considering the grammar of the text, I really do like the New International Version translation. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Because although it is true that David no doubt had called on the Lord previous times, it is a past action, and yet it continues on in the grammar to denote that he continues to cry. And what further evidence do we need than the second verse is him doing that very thing. So, in my troubles, I cried to the Lord and he answered me. I like the NIV. I call on the Lord in my distress and he answers me. Verse 2, deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Many sorrows pricked David because of Doag and mischief from those like him. But it's not just David. We see this on full display as a picture and a type of what our Lord Jesus Christ experienced, do we not? We read in John chapter 1, verse 11, that the Lord Jesus Christ came to his own, but they received him not. Think about the accusations that were hurled upon him during his unlawful trial before the high priest. Yes, our Lord Jesus Christ sang these words and found relief in them. While on the cross, with mighty bowls of Bashan surrounding him, he cries unto the Lord, and the Lord saves him. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is often true, brothers and sisters, that the Lord does not spare our physical bodies. In fact, unless we are here when he returns, none of our physical bodies will be spared. It is appointed for man once to die, and then the judgment. But if you belong to Christ, no matter what accompanies this journey to the heavenly Jerusalem, you can sing that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. You can sing this psalm, He Delivers My Soul. I cry in trouble, and He answers me. But we also want to recognize this, that David's words brought conflict. Our Lord Jesus Christ's words brought conflict. It brought division. Remember that perplexing statement our Lord said? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Ironic words coming from the Prince of Peace. What can we expect if we are living a life that follows him? What can we expect if we are that light that is set up on the stand 
for the world to see? If we are salt preserving the decaying of our culture around us, what can we expect to see? We can expect to see persecution. We can expect to see division and conflict. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can also expect for the Lord to deliver us out of these very troubles. And when I say call upon the Lord, we can call specifically on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think often when we consider that phrase, call upon the Lord, we have this nebulous thinking of God in our mind. And yes, we worship and follow the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But there are many who think that they cannot pray to Jesus, that the formula is to pray to the Father by the Spirit in the name of the Son. And although that is the biblical pattern and it is very appropriate to do, listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as Paul greets them. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. We have a great high priest who has suffered like us because he assumed a nature like us. And we can call upon him in our need, knowing that the God-man, Jesus Christ, intercedes for us right now before the throne of the Father in heaven, knowing our griefs, not only knowing them, bearing them. And for those of us who have not called upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, hear the words of Romans ten thirteen again, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Which, by the way, is an Old Testament citation. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Did you know that? We might hear that famous text from Romans 10, 13 and say, that's, that's Paul. Yes, that is Paul. That's Paul citing Joel. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon him today, if you have not yet. And what turns next in this psalm, from a thankful plea is a faithful taunt. Look at me, look with me at verse 3. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior, with the burning coals of the broom tree. It's almost as if the psalmist is remembering the deliverance of the Lord, recognizes his immediate need for deliverance again from the Lord, and then in bold confidence delivers a taunt to those who have the lying lips and the deceitful tongues. And he asks them, what shall be given to you? This is the point I want you to take away from these Two verses. That spiritual battle, brothers and sisters, is an opportunity for faith. It's an opportunity for faith. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you? Oh, if the psalmist was negatively inspired, downcast, pessimistic, he could answer nothing. You're going to get away with it. In fact, look at Psalm 10, starting in verse 1. This is exactly the posture at the beginning of this psalm. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. 
Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his desires in his heart. And the greedy man curses and spurns Yahweh. The wicked in his haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. See, this is not the words of the psalmist in Psalm 120. Your judgments are on high, out of sight. Where are they? Says the psalmist in Psalm 10. But I believe David is saying here, No, Lord, I trust your word. What shall be given to you, Doag? What shall be given to you, those who persecute the church? What shall be given to your deceitful tongue? Sharp arrows. Sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree. Well, who is this arrow? I mean, who is this warrior who fires these sharp arrows? It is the Lord himself. And so often these sharp arrows are none other than his word. It is no coincidence that these psalms of ascent come right after the longest psalm in the Bible, which is focused on the word of God, Psalm 119. It is the quintessential psalm concerning the word of God, the longest psalm in the Bible. And I think that there is an element of climbing this ladder spiritually is a meditation further on Psalm 119, but in the light of present circumstances. And so David looks to God's word and says, I I am confident, I am faithful in this spiritual battle because I believe what you have said in your word, Lord, that Doag and those who persecute me and your people will receive not reward, but sharp arrows with burning coals of the broom tree. This idea of this burning coals of the broom tree, a a broom bush provided hard wood that made excellent charcoal. And so the idea is that these are flaming arrows that will stay kindled. And think about that. The wrath and the anger of our Lord will never be quenched. In the fires of hell, The anger of our Lord burns for eternity, and their smoke goes up for eternity. When I was considering this verse about these sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree, I was thinking of these fiery arrows. Where have we heard the language of these fiery darts? It's the evil one who shoots his own fiery darts. But what does the Lord say to us? To put on the full armor of God so that we can withstand the fiery darts, the fiery arrows of the evil one. But question, can Doag or the unrepentant and the wicked protect themselves from the sharp arrows of the warrior, the Lord Jesus Christ? The burning coals of the broom tree that light those arrows? No. Much mightier are the Lord's fiery darts than Satan's. Wear the Lord's armor so that you can withstand the enemy's fiery darts and take comfort, brothers and sisters, that the Lord is firing his own at his enemies and they will not be able to wear any armor that will protect them. We have been given armor. They are naked. That is a plea to the unrepentant. And I think in many ways, David is saying these words so that those who hear them would repent, knowing what will happen to you if you don't. Only an insane person continues down a path that they know leads to destruction. And that is the path of the most. So this is a faithful taunt. Spiritual battle is an opportunity for faith. Remember Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Instead of reciting Psalm 10, again, 
recite Psalm 1. The wicked are not so. They're not blessed. They will not endure. But they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It is very easy to become discouraged in our families, in our jobs, in our culture, maybe even in the church. These are opportunities for faith. The Psalms offer us the assurance that we need that the Lord is sovereign and his purposes will not be thwarted. And if his purposes for you are good, if he's begun that work in you, he will be faithful to complete it. And then the psalmist takes another turn. Look at verse 5. Woe is me. What do you mean, woe is me? You just had a faithful taunt. Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshech, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. What is behind this lament? It's a longing to be in the house of the Lord. Remember what we said? What are the contexts behind these Psalms of Ascent? Those going up to Jerusalem. Now I would argue that all of this going up to Jerusalem, the feasts going up to Jerusalem, the fact that Jerusalem is Mount Zion on a hill, the fact that we're talking about Israelites, those who are in captivity from Babylon going into Jerusalem, those who are scattered abroad going for these feasts to Jerusalem, it's all pictures, brothers and sisters. It's all symbolic. It's all types. These things really happened. Did the Levites literally climb 15 steps? Yes. Did the Jews literally leave Babylon and go to Jerusalem? Yes. Did the Israelites once a year go to Jerusalem for wherever they were scattered by the commandment of the Lord? Yes. Did they sing these psalms? Most likely. Yes. But what is it picturing? It's picturing... Every child of God going to that house of the Lord, that heavenly Jerusalem. Even the city of Jerusalem is a type. It was a type of the heavenly Jerusalem. Even the Ark of the Covenant was a type. Remember when Moses was making the Ark? He was to make it according to the type that God showed him. Even the Ark of Noah was a type. He made it according to the instructions of the Lord. All of the Old Testament is instruction for us, brothers and sisters, to point us forward to the consummation of all these things. And so there is a literal understanding of this verse. Woe is me, says David, for I sojourn in Meshech, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Well, we don't have literally a place in Scripture where we know of David dwelling or sojourning in Meshech or in the tents of Kedar. Meshech was that central Anatolian kingdom, which is present-day Turkey, whereas Kedar was based in the Arabian Peninsula. But he's saying something figuratively here, literally, which we can then take spiritually. Again, Meshech and Kedar were in opposite directions from Jerusalem. One way to the north, one way to the south. What's David saying? I am far from home. I am far from home. Woe is me. And here's why I think David went to a woe. Because he, in his spiritual taunt, looked through the present circumstances with Doag looked through the present circumstances of his affliction and trial and said, ah, God's in control. He has a plan and a purpose. And it doesn't end with David, which immediately brings him to a lament. Remember how, G how Jesus said about the prophets of old, oh, how they longed to see this day. They longed to see me. And the Jews, what do you mean? They longed to see you. You're not even 50 years old. How could Abraham have rejoiced to see your day? And what does he say? 
before Abraham was, I am. And they said, that's it. Kill him. I think this is the foundation of David's lament here. This longful lament. Oh, there is something more. Lord, this existence is not just about me and my present circumstance. I said at the beginning, we look to the Psalms because we want to find comfort oftentimes. We want to find that balm for our soul. And brothers and sisters, they give us that. The Lord has given us the Psalms for that, for that purpose. But there's something greater. Our comfort is not the pearl of great price. What is the pearl of great price? It's Jesus Christ. He is the pearl of great price. The words of the Psalms are His voice, speaking to us, His body, for our comfort, but also for our hope. Because Kedar had a spiritual heritage to the Jews. Kedar happened to be the second son of Ishmael, if you go back to Genesis chapter 25. So it's not only a literal place that's signifying this distant, barbaric people group that are far from the temple of the Lord, but it's actually also symbolic of darkness. Darkness. Listen to St. Augustine again. Kadar, rendered in Latin, is tenebrae. Tenebrae is where we get that Latin phrase, tenebrous lux, after darkness light. And St. Augustine is saying, Kadar means tenebrae. It means darkness. Now you know that Abraham had two sons, whom indeed the apostle mentions in Galatians 4.22, and declares them to have been types of the two covenants. Hold on a second. Was Augustine a covenant theologian? Ishmael, therefore, was in darkness. Isaac, in light. These are they, the very persons who gainsay the spiritual ones who are progressing and detract from them and have deceitful tongues and and unrighteous lips. Isaac, therefore, is dwelling with Ishmael. This is what Augustine is saying. He's saying, David, or the the author is saying, "I'm, I'm of Isaac's seed. I'm of the promised lineage, and I've dwelt too long with Ishmael. It's reminiscent of Lot in Sodom in 2 Peter. Concerning that righteous man, Lot, it says, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. This is something of the spirit behind the woe. Not only am I far from the house of the Lord, am I longing for that promise that is to come in the future, which we know is brought about by our Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm tormented by what I see day after day. And I know we all feel something of that in this fallen world. And he goes on to say, For those who hate peace, I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Literally, what the text says is, I am peace. You may see the word for in your New American Standard Bible in italics. Again, another reason why I like this translation is it gives us these helpful um, uh, textual indicators. The psalmist is saying, I am peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Again, here we have a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is peace? David could be saying that he is peace in a figurative way, but it's pointing forward. Again, we need to think pointing forward because that's what the scriptures are intended to do. They all find their goal on Jesus Christ. Is Jesus ever called peace? Is he ever called I am I am peace. Think about that. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
We may think about Romans 5.1, that very important text. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or John chapter 16, when he encouraged the disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. David was taking courage in our Lord Jesus Christ in this psalm. In his longful lament. In his faithful taunt. Pastor Perkins taught us in Ephesians chapter 2, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace. He establishes peace. He preached peace. Yes, this last verse is a dart to our hearts to remind us, go to Christ. And if you are going to Christ and you stand with Christ, then you will be for peace. Just as the psalmist says, he was for peace, even though the world around him was for war. So here it is, brothers and sisters. In a sense, we all live in Meshech and Kadar, do we not? We all live as aliens in this fallen world. But as Jesus told us, we are in the world, but not of the world. And if we stand with Christ, although the world will hate us, and will not stand with us. Jesus Christ, the ruler of heaven and earth, will stand with you. Choose this day who you stand with, the world or the creator of heaven and earth. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this psalm. It is a powerful, powerful psalm, and we just began to penetrate its surface. Help us to interpret these psalms and all of your word with the goal of your son, Jesus Christ. For as he said, all of scripture testifies about me. All of the prophets of old long to see his day and search the scriptures to find out what time he would arrive. Well, Father, we live now 2,000 years, roughly, since the first coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. We confess his name this morning as a people called out in his name. And collectively, Lord, we trust that all of your purposes will be accomplished. And that he will come on the clouds in glory. And how we long for that day when we will see him and be like him and forever will be with him. Let that be the balm to our souls this morning in the midst of all of our personal trials. And may it be the rally call of your church, especially in the preaching of these Psalms of Ascent. And we ask and pray all these things in the Prince of Peace. In his precious name, our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.